Oak, delighted to have you guys here and delighted that we are able to do our second Charter Folk chat. Today, I'm super excited that we're able to do it with Howard Fuller. We'll bring Howard on right now. Hello, Howard, so great to have you. you here. I'll do a quick introduction. I'm not gonna spend uh, very much time. Charter Folk is kind of designed for people who are who know about charter schools and are passionate about it to begin with. And anybody that knows about charter schools and is passionate about charter schools knows a lot about Howard Fuller. Um, I'm just going to focus on on one one way that I would introduce you, you know, which is, you know, if we were to create uh, a pantheon of charter folk uh, from, uh, you know, and, and chisel the visages, you know, into a mountain, you know, where we would have just, you know, scores and scores of, of faces, you know, in the rock, uh, the one at the front would be Howard Fuller. And the reason for that is because you have been doing this work for so incredibly long and you've been doing it so effectively. But perhaps more important than anything else, you have been doing it with a moral authority and credibility that has just filled tens of thousands of charter folk with greater inspiration to forge on. It's my honor to have you here uh, and to be able to work with you, Howard. Thank you again for being here today. Well, Jeff, thanks a lot. I mean, but if, if I had to put the people up there, I would put Ember and Joe Nathan and Ted Coldery and all of those people in Minnesota who, who started this idea. And then Ted, of course, would take us back to, to Bud, and then he'd start talking about Shanker <laughs> and all of that. So, but I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. And I thank you for acknowledging those other folks. In fact, I'll be bringing some of them up in our questions here. Um, I um, wanted to go to your book, which I uh, was saying before we recorded, I had a chance to you know read you know again. And um, there's so many passages I'd love to dive into. Um, one that I found particularly resonant for me was your work in Durham in May of 1966, because I was born on April 30th, 1966, right? <laughs> and, and it's not too often, right? When you find like tangible evidence of somebody who is doing something, you know, in the month that you were born at a level of sophistication, you know, beyond anything that I got to all, you know, and through my entire career, right? It just speaks to, you know, why I introduced you the way that I did. But, you know, I think if I was to dive into any part of the book, you know, I want to dive into the end. This, um, this uh, message that you share with all of us, that our work is really a rescue mission and that you've learned along the way just how hard it is to make systemic change. And maybe that systemic change isn't even possible, right? And a lot of what I've really been trying to get us focused on in our early going is, yes, how we do the rescue mission, but also how we assemble our rescue missions collectively into something that perhaps can push for that kind of systemic reform. So can you just tell me, where are you on your journey on this? And what do you share with all of us about how to orient our thinking on that tough, 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 tough challenge? Well, yeah, first of all, I, I would never ask people not to fight for systemic change. I mean, I think that's why you get up to do this, right? Because you do want to change the systems that oppress people or the systems that deny people their just due. I just think I concluded that education, for all of the good that it does, it, it, it does tremendous good, that I really see that it is primarily a rescue mission. You're, you're, we're trying to make sure that as many kids as possible get the best chance to change the trajectory of their lives. And so by giving them an education, you give them, for most of these kids, the best lever that they will have to try to make that kind of difference in their life. 
But just as some of us are in a school every day trying to give kids that education, there ought to be people like you, Jed, and others who are out there saying, yeah, it's important that we have really good schools. It's important that kids get the best education possible. But how do we change the very nature of the system that prevents them from living the kind of lives that we want them to live? And once you take that position, of course, you have to go way beyond education. You have to mm. go to the other uh, institutional arrangements that our kids will encounter as they try to have a decent life. And so to that extent, it, it becomes clear that any one of us who's focused on really broad institutional or systemic change, education is like a subset of what has to be a broader strategy. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I think that in this current environment, when these systemic issues um, have become so prevalent and, and become so much more visible in so many other areas. One thing that I wonder about is, well, A, there's just the feeling of like overwhelmedness about like how massive the problem is and how high the stakes are at this moment. And if there's anything that struck me about the interview that I did with Arnie Duncan a month ago, it was just how vulnerable he was on that, how visible he was, uh, dejected and worried about maybe we will not be able to summon the resolve to address those issues. Um, but at the same time, I, I asked him, did he think that eventually the focus will come to the systemic issues in education? They may be in criminal justice right now. They may be in police reform, whatever it may be. There's not a whole lot of focus on education, but the same cooked in racism, the same cooked in unfairness and equity that is, that is so prevalent in these other areas is within ours as well. Do you think that this moment ultimately translates into new focus within our realm or are we gonna have to make it happen or is there another way to think about it altogether? Yeah, I, I don't think anything automatically translates into anything. <laughs> I think if you're gonna make change, you gotta make change. It's, it's, it's like when yeah. people say, well, you know, the moral arc of the universe is long and it always bends towards justice. That's bogus to me. Because <laughs> most of the time it bends towards injustice. And to the extent that it's gonna bend towards justice, it's gonna be because we bend it. There's, there's mm. nothing automatic, right? Just like Jeff, we gotta quit acting as if when time moves on, there's always going to be progress. That's 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 not accurate, you know, historically. Yep. Because what yep. can happen is, you know, you get pushed back, and we're and we're at a time in America where, at least in my view, there are two very clear differences of opinion about what America should look like, and mm -hmm. it's not at all clear that what you and I probably believe in the broad construct is what's going to win out. And even if mm -hmm. it wins out to the extent that elected Biden represents that, mm -hmm. for me, it's just going to be another battle. Because yep. although I believe that Donald Trump is a fascist, I believe that what he represents is not something that is good for uh, our families and our children or necessarily mm -hmm. good for America. I'm not one of these people who believes that Joe Biden is some kind of savior. And so for me, mm -hmm. I'm they're saying, I've got a choice between a man who don't believe that my black life matters as a life and another mm. man who has a tepid understanding of what it what needs to happen in order for, for my kids and my families to have the best chance for a better life. Yep. And so how do you recommend that we orient ourselves? Those that have, have made this calling 
improving public education mm -hmm. um, better. Um, how do you, and frankly, I mean, at least for me, I know so much more about this space. I have so much more to give here. Um, you can always go thinking about, well, I'll go dabble in something else. But I feel like dabbling in something else is just me making subtracting from what is my net potential, right? And when I look at so many people in charter world, you know, this is something that they've got passionately great about. We got problems. We've got got we, we've got all sorts of things we could get better, right? But this is a place where we can uniquely make our progress. How do you recommend to us that we both remain focused within you know this place where we have the most to give? while also maybe helping in some other way, or at least orient ourselves to those other things um, in a way that maximizes our impact. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say two things. First off, we, we need to be really clear about what we mean by public education. Because one of the arguments I've tried to make over the years is that we make a mistake by equating the delivery system with public education. Public education to me is an idea. It's, 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 it's this notion that we want, quote, the public to be educated. The traditional public school systems are simply a delivery system. They're not public yeah. education. They're one delivery system. Charters are a delivery system. But I think what we need to be careful about, Jed, is as passionate as we are about charter schools, we can't get so committed to a particular institutional arrangement that we lose sight of purpose. So that yep. one of the things we got, we got to always be clear about is what is the purpose of charter schools? What, what, yep. why, why do charter schools exist? And, yep. and how do charter schools fit in the realm of public education. Because as you know, yeah. for all the people who, who, who are anti-parent choice, oh, no, no, you can't have parent choice. These same people now are creating pandemic pods. They're coming up with different ideas based on this uh, pandemic for how it is they're gonna go about educating their children. And the people yep. who have the resources, the money, the know-how, the political connections, they're gonna be able to get support for this idea of pandemic pods or whatever you want to call them. Yep. All yep. that is, is, is a form of parent choice. All that is, yep. is a different way to organize themselves to try to make sure that their children are educated. And so those yep. who are supportive of charters, we can't backtrack on the importance of poor and working class people and black and brown people having the yep. right of self-determination. And, and yep. one of those things, one of those determinants would be charter schools. So, so yep. the first thing I would say is being very, very clear about what we mean by public education and how charter schools fit into that realm. The second thing is also being very clear about all the things that impact our children before they ever get to us. And we, mm -hmm. we should never act as if charter schools by themselves can over the fact that kids yep. slept in a car the night before. And, and, yep. and so, you know, you and I went through this whole period of no excuses and all that. And even back then, I was making the argument that no excuses is not the same thing as no empathy. And so one, one of the things we have to be really clear about is that schools can make a real difference in children's lives. There's no question about that. But schools yep. alone cannot make the difference that we want to make.
So that yep. while we may be focused on schools as we should be, we need to be collaborating with people who are working on healthcare, people who are working yep. on housing, people who are working. It isn't that we need to go over there and do that. There are people already over there doing that. The question yep. is, is there a way for us to collaborate with some of those individuals so that we 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 achieve a broader purpose, right? Because yep. ultimately what we're trying to do really is to do what Paulo Freire said in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. We're, we're trying to make sure that our children have the skills and the capacity that they need to engage in the practice of freedom, which means that yep. they can be involved in transforming their world. And so yep. in order for them to be able to transform their world, they have to, number one, understand their world. But then yeah. they have to have the tools that are needed so that when they confront their world, they have the capacity to make a difference. Yep, yep. Well, I um, I love the um, specificity on use of language around public education. And um, I think we are very aligned on that, actually. I believe that... Um, I think that we just have to orient ourselves differently toward this and realize what our what our purpose is. And I think it starts with a notion that, unfortunately, our public school efforts, whether we call it a system, whatever we call it, um, have turned out to be not that public. And by that, I'm not talking about whether or not they're run by a public agency or any of their governance status or anything like that. I'm talking about they're, they're set up to actually create benefit for a private few rather than a public many, right? And what the role of, and, and, and unfortunately cooked into our traditional system now are those inequities that keep it that way in perpetuity, right? And in my role, in my belief, the role of charter schools is to evolve America such that we help purge these things from, from our public school system. And we should be defining things that are counter to you know, our notions of equity and social justice as non-public. That is not public education, right? But my sense is that if we are going to, in the new political environment, whatever it's gonna be on the other side of this, of this election, if we are still advocating for the same things that we've always advocated for, as important as they are, we gotta get our facilities funds. We gotta get a statewide authorizer, the things that you and I have been fighting for forever, right? But if we don't also take the political heft that we are developing, and push the pu public school system to purge itself of its redlining of opportunity, whatever we want to call it, you know, of moving money away from high needs communities to subsidize education in low needs communities, you know, to allow some schools to operate with no accountability whatsoever, while others actually are answerable to some third party, right? That, you know, uh, we should be defining those things as non-public and pushing, you know, and, and being some kind of example of something different. Is that, does that resonate at all? Or is that just like, Jed, you're off in, you know, uh, a no. whole other land of naivete? <laughs> no, first of all, Jed, I've been reading your stuff, right? So, and, and so you've been making this argument in, in, in different ways on the stuff that I've seen on your website, right? And I would never ask you not to make that argument. But, but ultimately what we all are gonna be faced with is what, what, what are the limits of my energy? What, what, what are the yeah. limits? of my reach? What are the limits of my capacity to make change? And you never want to limit yourself too much to the extent yep. that you're pushing yourself. But at the, at the same time, at a certain point, 
people are going to have to get focused on where can I make a significant difference? What what yeah. is it that I can do when I get up every morning and make a significant difference? Now, for some people, what it means is I'm going to get up every day and make sure that my school is yep. delivering the best education possible to kids. For some of us, it's I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to push for a policy change that will make a difference across a broader spectrum. And I think probably what we're going to have to do, Jeb, is we're going to have to have a greater appreciation for the division of labor and a greater mm. appreciation for the different things that different ones of us can bring to the table and not ask all of us to do the same thing. But, but yeah. the problem with that is we're out there in competition for resources. We're out there in competition for being recognized in the space. And, yep. and, and plus, we have a generation of people, this is just my, in my view, a generation that focuses in on branding, a generation that says the number of likes that I get on <laughs> Instagram you know, defines the progress that I'm making, right? And to a certain extent, it does. But the question is, does that go far enough? So the point yeah. I'm trying to make here, even as you expound, as you did, on the broader framework, at yep. a certain point in time, you know, as an organizer, you have to t you you have to take that broader framework and then bring it into actionable things, right? Yeah. That that make the realization of that framework possible, or else what yep. happens is we're operating at a, a level of abstraction that is interesting right. from a philosophical standpoint, but doesn't move the needle from a practical standpoint. And so yep. it is that relationship between theory and practice and where we focus at different moments in time. Yep. Well, where the tire hits the road for me is what are the bills that we run? What what are we literally trying to, uh, to get done, um, both in terms of how it may involve um, result in change in policy, but it also may change discussion, right? Um, and I've got really, you know, specific ideas on that, but I'll I'll leave I'll leave some of those aside for right now to be able to ask you a question because I I want to focus on what we're getting wrong, Howard. What things we've screwed up uh, within the charter world? Yes, there, I mean there's this broader discussion we should have about uh, about this, but um, if we're going to have the level of impact that we want, I think there's some changes that we got to make, right? And one of these things that I think has been so bad, and this is why I wanted to you know, refer back to, to Joe, Nathan, one thing that Joe has just been hammering on forever is just this, we cannot lose this idea of chartering, this idea that chartering is a tool, it's a resource that every school community could use to free itself, to get control of its own destiny, and to do things better for the kids and community that they care about. Um, I personally come to charters through uh, through a charter conversion. My mom and dad worked in public education for 33 years. I just I know how people yearn for their schools to be better and to not be held back by the bullcrap that you, we find in so many schools. Uh, I also know, you know, in, in some of the most uh, you know memorable conversations I've had in my life, I had at Mary Landrew's house, Senator Mary Landrew, uh, when she was she introduced me to. Uh, the groups of African-American uh, school leaders who were among the very last to convert their schools to charter school status in New Orleans. That's how we made it the last mile, right? And these people were so passionate. They were so excited. And they, were, they would be such great ambassadors for our movement. But we started this when we had 70% of kids in charter schools, not when we had 10%. 
And what I wonder is, you know, how in New Orleans and how everywhere we might be thinking about chartering differently if we had made this more of an emphasis, as Joe Nathan's always been encouraging us to do. Uh, react to that. Is it, does it help? Or is it, Jed, it's not really that important. Because I'll tell you, Howard, this is one I've been hammering on over and over again. People like, Jed, you're naive. It's not going to happen. It's not worth the effort. Forget it. We're never getting anything to convert, right? And so, but I just can't give it up because I just feel like we're fundamentally wrong on this particular issue. Yeah, so a couple of things, Jed, even though you, you were breaking up a little bit, so I hope I got the gist of what you were asking me. But one of the things I learned from Ted Caldery, and I'm sure Joe to a certain extent reflects that, is the innovation is not charter schools. The innovation is chartering. The, 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 the innovation was this notion that someone else other than a traditional school board could create a public school. And what happened was that we started going into individual schools saying, I don't see what's different about this school than one down the street. Because what we thought was the innovation is you have to see different types of schools. No, the innovation mm -hmm. is who gets the chance to create public oh, schools. And within mm -hmm. that context, you can have different types of schools. The problem I have in New Orleans, a city that I love dearly, by the way, yeah. is that um, we, we, we had an opportunity to re-examine the entire enterprise. And we have the same opportunity with COVID, but we're not doing it. So in other words, what's happening is mm. the debate is about whether or not virtual schools are good or bad or whatever. We're not going back and looking at the whole Prussian model, we're, we're, we're still <laughs> operating under the Prussian model that was set up <laughs> from the first place. We're, we're not asking, you know, should we all be sitting in rows? Should we, how many, why, why do you need X amount of credits? Why do kids need to take six different courses? We're, we're not using this opportunity to examine the very, philosophical foundations upon which this thing is structured. And so when you yep. don't do that, when you, when, you, when you come up out of Katrina, you create things that look a lot like what was happening before Katrina. Because in essence, what you're doing is using the same mindset. And, and even though you, you may recreate it outside of the traditional structure, you bring the traditional structure into the new thing. Because yep. we're not going deep enough in terms of our examination of what our kids should be getting in the 21st yep. century. And, 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 and I think that the problem with that is when you start talking about that, people glaze over, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Well, it's, it's just like right now, people are saying, we need to reform the police. Well, changing the uniforms isn't reforming the police. <laughs> Eliminating the chokehold isn't reforming the police. You can only reform the police when you go back and understand how did the police get created in the first place? It really mm -hmm. wasn't the day and night patrols in New York in the 1840s. It was the slave patrols in South Carolina mm -hmm. in 1712. If you go back and look at over time, how does certain things happen? And mm -hmm. if you're going to do real institutional or systemic change, you must start there. 
And yep. then you begin to talk about, okay, how do you actually, quote, reform this? And, and mm -hmm. we're not talking about revolution. We're, 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 we're just talking about radical reforming. How do right. you reform something? Yep. You can't reform something without understanding the foundation upon which the present form was built. Yep. And then what does it mean to actually reform it? Yep, yep. And then, you know, to your, your prior point, what's the concrete action? Uh, where does, you know, theory meet practice? Um, right. And that is just one of the toughest things around advocacy because it boils down to, you can only push for so many things, right? You can only, and, and so what are you going to push for and how do they fit into a theory of change to a North Star that we believe, you know, will get us where we want to go, and um, and my sense is that we are we are adrift on that, and um, and that if we can get ourselves um, more deeply anchored to some of these things that you're pushing us toward, I think it would be, you know, a great thing for us. I want to go. I, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm, I'm sorry. Did you, did, did you have something else? No, I, I want to push up. one more thing. Like, just, yeah. so, so we have an opportunity, right? Uh, because of COVID to not just send every kid back to school, even if you could do it. You know what I mean? I mean yep. What people are saying is we got, we got to send all the kids back face to face. One of the things we probably should have learned during this process is that at a minimum, we are to restructure or redesign the way that schools operate so that some of the things that we've done under COVID become more of a quote, permanent part of yeah. how we view delivering instruction. Yeah. And what I'm worried about is in many instances, we're gonna miss the opportunity once again to do a real redesign. Because mm -hmm. right now, everyone is saying, if we can just get every kid back to school face-to-face -face as they were before, we shouldn't be making that argument, in, yeah. in my opinion. We should be talking about what lessons have we learned since March? that yep. we can apply now to how we're going to deliver instruction in the future. Yep. It seems like a moment to be proposing things like, hey, I am a family that um, is just absolutely not happy with the remote learning that I'm getting. And it makes no sense that I absolutely have to get this remote learning from the most proximate school district when it's terrible at doing this. Why don't I have the right to go someplace else? And especially why don't I, if, if, I, if I'm among the folks that have been most underserved by this um, system in the past, why can't I get some new, new right to some new op opportunities? And then we also start encouraging a bunch of players, school districts, charters, whomever, to be, start doing greatly more different things than they're currently doing right now. Are, are, is it proposals along those lines that you're talking about? Is that getting to some greater level of specificity? Or do you already have a few in your you know, in your in your quiver, you're ready to bring out. No, I don't. I, I mean, I think what you just said, though, is, is what I'm is, is what I'm saying. And I'm not even arguing that that's radical systemic change. I'm just <laughs> not either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it, that it changes some of how we deliver instruction to make it more effective for kids, because I can make an argument that every kid should have an IEP and, 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 yeah. and, and not just for, quote, special ed or, right. you know, but but for each kid, I mean, and, and, and we actually have the capacity to do that, right? It doesn't necessarily fit into the bureaucratic models that we have, but if we were gonna actually function for every kid, 
we could do that. I mean, yep. in, in, in some respects, there are friends of mine who would argue that I'm making a de-schooling argument, right? Because as you know, <laughs> there, there, there was a whole movement to defund, defund the schools. Yeah, yeah right. defund the schools, right? Get the money right. to the parents, right? You yep. know, and, and let them figure out how to do it. But to a certain extent, that's not a bogus argument because because if if, if, if people are effective and they're going to be to a certain level of creating these pods and different types of structures like that, then the argument is going to be, how come the money then doesn't go to them? Which really yep. puts all those people are going to cringe. It puts you in a voucher argument to a certain extent, or, or yep. it puts you in, in, in some type of, of funding mechanism that doesn't get run through the institutions that have been yep. set up. And whether people yep. want to like that argument or not, that's where this is leading. Yep. Yeah, well, it's like my old bosses and you know, dear friends, uh, Larry Rosenstock and and uh, Rob Reardon at High Tech High, right? They were always just like, everybody needs an IEP, right? And we need a, a radically different form of education. Um, and you know, they've made significant headway in their careers, but all the way to what we need, absolutely not. Let me. Um, I want to keep focused on you know where we're screwing up, you know, and. Um, this issue of we have not had enough leaders of color, you know, brought into um, our movement um, is, you know, a, a, a grave problem. Um, there are so many different like facts you could seize upon to like try to illustrate. Um, I mean, the one that still motivates me, I think, you know, it does is, you know, you and me being, you know, in a in an advocacy, you know, national leadership meeting probably about three years ago, four years ago, um, where the hundred advocates for charter schools, you know, uh, were, were there. Um, and I think there were four people of color in that room. I mean, there was you, there was Myrna Castrojone, there might've been two others, right? Um, and it just pointed to just an absolutely intolerable situation. Something that I contacted you about immediately after that meeting. And I've reminded you, I've never, first of all, I was motivated going into the darn meeting. You know, I knew this was a problem going in, right? But it just redoubled coming out, right? Ad, we got our, our problems in 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 in, in DEI in, in advocacy are worse than they are, you know, within our schools, you know, and our schools have 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 severe problems, you know. So what I wanted to hear from you is just uh, a if you want to like just chime in on the degree to which you think this actually is a you know a, an immense problem, that would be great. But then, how did it happen? How did it really happen in your view? And what can we learn? And what can we learn from that so we don't keep making this mistake going forward? Okay, so first of all, I know how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> I know you do. That's why I want to hear so, it. You know, first of all, I, I, I would argue with Ted and Joe and all those people as to when did the first national meeting of charter schools actually take place, right? Now, for some people, they got one idea. I, I believe it was in Roy Romer's mansion uh, in Colorado. And it was about 35 of us in that meeting. And in that meeting, I raised the question back then, where are the black people? And there were, because there were only three black people in that, in, in, in that meeting. There were no uh, Latinx or Latino people at all. But I'm gonna tell you, Jed, and people get mad at me when I say this, but I don't care. There was a meeting in 2006 in Eli Broad's office. And the people who were in that meeting know what I'm getting ready to say is the truth. So in that meeting was Wendy, 
I think David was there and 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 not Mike. Uh, you know, Linda was in that meeting. Uh, Greg, uh, John Long, I think, who ran the charter school growth fund at that time. Uh, Dacia was in that meeting. You, so you you can go down the list of all of the people who at that point in time were critical to the charter movement. Don Fisher was alive then. He was in that meeting. Eli was in that meeting. Uh, the Walton Family Foundation was represented by Jim Blue in that meeting. I think Dell was in there. I think Robertson might have been in that meeting. And so, so we went around the room and the question was, what is wrong with the charter movement? When it got to me, I said, look at this damn room. There were mm -hmm. only two non-white people in that room, me and Jim Shelton. And at that point in time, Jim Shelton was representing Gates. Mm -hmm. In that meeting, a decision was made that philanthropy need to organize itself to support networks that they believed in. And I believe that when that decision was made, it meant that the money flowed in a certain direction. And when that money flowed in a certain direction, it cut out the possibility of black and brown people being significantly a part of that flow. Because at that moment in time, black and brown people were not in charge of networks. We, mm -hmm. we, we were dealing with, with small schools who got set up with the idea of serving a community. I yep. believe that in 2006, when that decision was made, it, 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 it moved the networks up to the top of mm -hmm. the charter uh, framework. Those networks all were run by white people, all of mm -hmm. them. And, mm -hmm. and so from that moment in time, we could talk all we want about how we need to have more black people, more brown people. The reality is the money decision had already been made. And that money decision created the environment where we are today. And people know I'm telling the truth because there was another meeting at the Gap uh, headquarters 10 years later to, 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 you know, to celebrate that meeting that took place in 2006. I was on a panel and I said, in 2006, I asked y'all to look at this damn room. In yep. 2000, 10 years later, the room looked exactly the same. The mm -hmm. only thing that yep. happened was there was a different black man there representing Gates as opposed to Jim Shelton. <laughs> I was the only black person. There was no no uh, uh, Latino or Latinx person in that room. So what I'm saying to you, Judd, is people got to quit acting like this was some damn accident. The yep. reality of it is that we are where we are today because conscious decisions were made about who was going to get put in charge, who was going to get the money, and who wasn't going to get the money. And mm -hmm. until people change that, this is all to me just discussion. It, it, yep. it, it's, it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's like people talk to me about, oh, you know, we got to have diversity. Diverse, diversity don't mean jack if the power relationships don't change. Because yep. all diversity is, is changing the color of the room. It ain't changing the power dynamic in the room. And until yep. we are prepared to do that, this to me is just our discussion. Yep. Yep. Well, um, I appreciate that specificity. I think it, you know, it really puts it uh, in, in a great frame. Um, I will also add others um, beyond that group, you know, that, that have contributed along the way. 
to a, a kind of thinking that I believe is, is just narrow. And, and wherever I sense a kind of narrowness within what we're doing in Charterland, I, I, I rebel against it. I mean, it's why I wrote, you know, uh, I mean, Mr. Broad's name is, you know, um, uh, helpful, you know, in terms of making the Broad versus Broad argument, right? Um, and, you know, every time we have allowed ourselves to go narrow as opposed to go broad, these, these kinds of problems happen, right? We go narrowly into the networks only. Well, see what happens. When we go narrowly go into chartering, we're not going to do conversions anymore. Well, again, we've like distanced ourselves from a, a leadership base that could have been much, much more diverse, right? right? And so, you know, my sense right now is if there's anything we can do, it's just to learn from the dangers of narrowness, the dangers of narrowness. Um, and I think we've learned it to some degree, but I don't know if we've learned it enough. And, you know, uh, I hope to be able to stay in touch with you on that as we, uh, you know, may need, you know, your voice to just keep hammering us on this because um, it's something that you've been identifying for for decades. Yeah, but I, I think the other thing, Joe, that's important about this is that uh, any, any movement in order to survive has to change. <laughs> it's like it can remain stuck where it started. And I think the difficulty is to be constantly reassessing what you're doing. Because, the, because human beings can only absorb so much change at one time, right? And so to a yep. certain extent, you, when you make change, if change is constant and there's never no one or two things that you settle on for any period of time to give people a chance to try to see if this works, that's not a good thing either. But right. there's always got to be those of us who are out there who, who, who keep asking, uh, well, what about this? Who keeps saying, well, okay, yeah, we got here, but how do we get to the next stage if what yep. we're talking about is really making significant and meaningful change? And I don't think that that's an easy thing to do. And I'm not arguing that it's an easy thing to do. Yep, yep. Well, I mean, just to put a, 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 you know, a, a focus on it, we get so narrow that you have someone like Margaret Fortune with her background that is deciding to make a school in San Bernardino, right? Um, and because San Bernardino wasn't geographically focused, you know, um, where funding happened to be, right? And because it wasn't a large enough organization or not, right? Um, so it was gonna be outside of the catchment area of philanthropy, right? And it was, it was seeing things like that you know, and just having to lean against whatever rule it was, this makes no sense. There's no sense. And, you know, thank goodness folks came to their senses on that. And look what fortune has grown into, right? Look what's it grown into. Who wouldn't, you know, uh, just uh, want, you know, a thousand other fortunes. The more fortunate we can become, right? But, you know, we make ourselves fortunate by making good investments, you know, and, and you know, hopefully over time our hit rate is improving here. Yeah, I mean, um, let me. I mean, is a good example. I mean, there's a lot of great examples all around the country of people who, when given the opportunity, can really create great things. I mean, I think about friendship charter schools. I think about the first time I sat down and talked with Donald Hintz. Amazing. Uh, well, actually, Debbie and I sat down and talked with Donald Hintz about you should start a school, man, <laughs> and you should use yeah. your, your, you know, the friendship uh, sort of settlement house kind of thing as like the basis for starting a school. And yeah. it was the investment from Edison that, in fact, gave Donald the, the boost that he needed to create 
the the network that is now friendship charter schools but but my view is that uh there there should be room in this movement to to support people who just want to have one great school in their community i mean i thought what was interesting i just i didn't read the report yet but i know uh the alliance just came out with a thing that said that something like 60 percent of single site schools were the ones who were able to turn on a dime and do yeah. things differently yeah, uh, I saw that. You know, uh, in COVID, right? So once again, here's an example of why just what you just said, we should not be putting all of our eggs in the network basket and that we right. ought to be creating ways for, for people to create one really good school that serves the community that they're interested in serving. And that to me is both a moral issue and a political issue, frankly. Yep. <laughs> because when yep. the politics of this roll around, you're in much better shape when you've got people who are from communities who put a stake in a community yep. who are saying yep. this is our school. No, we're not quote controlled by the billionaires or whatever. This is a school that was created to serve our community and we're serving that community. We're yep. in much better shape to have a lot of those schools that we can talk about and not just the larger networks. Yep. The only the only appendix I would add to that is I agree with you. It's totally a great thing to only do a single school and just do great stuff. But the world should be coming to those people all the time and saying, if you want to do a second school, we're always here for you. We are right. here as much for here for you if you do a second school, if that organization does their 27, right? right. And it's just a, it's a spirit of respect, right? The other thing too is there was incredible growth in California during my time there. And what people don't really understand is, New single sites, some growth, yes. The big CMOs, some growth. The engine, the engine were the organizations that grew to be two to five schools. And the way that happened is by going to these smaller organizations and realizing how much latent value they're really well, I, I, I agree with that, John. I, I mean, I don't think we ought to be limited, but I think the people who do want to like concentrate on developing a really, really good school and that the school doesn't just become a school, but it becomes a focal point for a broader community strategy on how to serve our children. That's great. All right, well, I told you at the beginning of the call, I've got, you know, I, I could go for three hours. Can I get you for two more questions? I got two more yeah, just big yeah, concepts yeah. I need to hear you. So um, this this one comes down to raw power and money. I, you know, I love it sometimes when you, when you just like cut through all the crap and say, people, this is about power, this is about money, who has it, who doesn't have it, the other side has so much, we're never gonna have as much as them, all that, right? Um, given where we are right now, um, and given that we need to build, you know, our advocacy strength as much as possible, right? And the other side, you know, has this uh, mechanism through teacher unions and dues to aggregate resources at such a level, right? That it's it's impossible to even think of anything around parity, right? But for me, if we are going to succeed for the long term, right? We're going to have to have some loci locuses, you know, where resources can aggregate that are not solely philanthropic, right? And one of the things that I think we can claim as a credit, you know, for the charter school movement so far is, well, hey, 6% of the money that used to be going to the establishment is coming to something different. And the portion of that 6% that used to go to protect the, um, the establishment through advocacy investments isn't going there, right? But that, that funding that used to go to protect the, the status quo is not coming you know, in any way to 
defend charter schools or advance charter schools. And this is for good reasons, right? We want to keep money in the classroom, all sorts of stuff. But it's my sense that if we're really going to build strength for the long term, we have to have organizations that can get membership relationships with the schools such that a significant portion of these resources can begin to be aggregated. And then you can start to build you know, a kind of long-term strength that is not so philanthropy dependent as our prior advocacy efforts have been. Tell me, have I been spending too much time in the dispensary you know, here nearby? <laughs> or, 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 or am I onto something here? This is about how do we have the money and the capacity we're gonna need? Right. No, Jed, I think you are onto something. The way I would characterize it, people probably may recoil from this, but uh, it's like one time we were in a meeting uh, in Wingspread, uh, it, which is a conference center in Wisconsin, and Ted Colder was in that meeting. And what yep. people were, were arguing for was we needed to have a strong central organization, right, that would court lead the movement. And Ted's argument was one that I agree with, was no, what we really need is to have multiple things that, that we're never going to be able to, to centralize power and resources in the way that the union does. So we shouldn't try to develop an organizational form like that, because we're not going to be able to do that. So it's almost like, how do you fight a guerrilla warfare? It's how do you how do you how do you fight against a, 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 an opponent that has more money, has more organization, and et cetera? The main thing that you have should be your nimbleness, your 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 ability to change quickly, your ability to strike and not think that you need to hold ground as a way to <laughs> to go fight a war, right? So, so the question that I, I, I think Zed, that you may be onto, and I would push you to think even more about is, what what is a strategy against a better organized, uh, more powerful uh, organization? And, and what that requires is for us to be more uh, definitive about our strengths. Mm -hmm. you know, okay. It's being clear about our weaknesses, but the question is, what are our strengths and how do we use those strengths to battle over the next decade, over the yeah. next 20 years, over the next 25 years? And it's not at all clear to me that, that we're doing enough thinking in that way. Yep, yep. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep trying to push the question out there and and, you know, uh, encourage people to keep thinking more on these things. And um, again, uh, expect me to stay in contact. <laughs> let, me right. go to this <laughs> let me go to this I'm last question. I'm always willing to help in any ways that I can. <laughs> well, I know you're supposedly retired, which yeah, I can only I just, la I can just laugh at. I just <laughs> laugh at. Um, so um, uh, let me just ask this last question. Um, it's about um, what is what is the wise level of aggressiveness, right? And this is something that um, just generally, um, what I think you've demonstrated, you know, through your whole life is just a level of courage and a willingness to do things um, that um, the moment required. Um, and you've been there at key moments, you know, whether it was with Ms. Carpenter, you know, and, and with, you know, Senator Warren, or, you know, what it's, you know, been at through Bayo, through other things that you've done, you know, where at different moments, 
you know, really aggressive stuff has needed, been needed and you've been able and willing to do it. And generally, my sense is that we just aren't nearly aggressive enough. We just have a kind of timidness. But on the other hand, I mean, in reading, you know, reading your book, I also, you know, was really struck by your recognition, you know, when um, Wisconsin almost veered away from, you know, the voucher program that uh, that was doing so much good for kids, where you really stepped into folks and said, "Hey, we can't do this. We we got to cut a deal, right?" And so I wonder whether or not you can just give us any thoughts about generally, are we are we as aggressive as as we need to be? And do you have any kind of thoughts about, well, okay, if you embrace a different kind of aggressiveness, how do you retain also the kind of of you know common sense that we need also to know when you may be pushing too far? I, I think I think aggressiveness or common sense are not absolutes. I, I, I think they exist within within time and space, right? And and so that what would have been considered aggressive five years ago may be zero today, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm very reluctant to start telling people you need to be more of this or more of that. I think what you have to be is what the moment in history requires, and 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 I, and I think. What is aggressive has to be attached to the moment that we're in. And the methods that you use have to be attached to the moment that we're in. And you also have to just recognize the, the life experience of the people who are functioning at this moment. And, and what yeah. I mean by that, Jen, is like, I come at this in a certain way based on theory and practice, right? Based on things that I've studied, I've read, and based on my own practice. You can't expect somebody who hasn't gone through what I've gone through to approach the situation in the same way that I do. But they don't have to. Yep. <laughs> but, yep. but what they do have to do, and, and I always go back to Franz Fanon's book, Wretched of the Earth. And in mm. this book, Franz Fanon said, every generation out of relative obscurity must discover its mission and either fulfill it or betray it. And mm. I believe deeply in that, right? And so I'm not out here telling people you should be doing this or you should be doing that because I don't know what you should be doing at this moment in time. Because mm. I, I, I think that that has to come from your analysis of what you are currently facing. And so yeah. for a person like me to be standing up telling some 20-year-old, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, I don't know that I can tell you that. I can tell mm -hmm. you what my experience has been. I can tell you what we tried to do, but I don't know that that's even relevant for you today, right? Because, because yeah. you're, you're operating in a totally different milieu. And, and more important, you're operating from, from whatever you currently have experienced and have mm -hmm. been able yeah. to bring to the table, right? And so yeah. those who were back there in the beginning, we had a whole set of historical uh, experiences that are not relevant today. I mean, they're relevant to a certain extent to understand it, but they yeah. can't define what should be done today. And, yeah. and that's just my way of saying, Jed, is I don't know what constitutes being aggressive today. Is it, uh, you know, a, a, a harshly worded, Tweet? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, but but whatever it is, those of us who are fighting today, we've got to determine it. And then we've got to determine how to be effective with it, right? Because at the end of the day, it isn't, a, at least in my opinion, it's, it is not 
about building people's individual brands. Right. It's still about advancing the larger need, the larger interests of our families and our kids. Right. That yeah. that to me is yeah. the one constant in this, right? So whatever yeah. it is we're doing, if we're not doing it to promote their needs and their interests, then it, it shouldn't be done. If all this yeah. is about is 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 making sure that you're positioned to, to be some kind of Twitter king or queen, that to me is is worthless. But yeah. if you're being a Twitter king or queen advances the interests of our families, then that's a different thing. I guess what my sense is, why I bring the question up is because I think that there, it, we're boxed into a certain narrative right now um, that we're having a hard time busting out of, right? And my own sense is that in order to bust out of it, we're going to have to take some more risk. We may have to propose some things that may piss off some of our fo former Hopefully. political allies, right? Hopefully. And what's, what's you know, what's, in my view, narrowing us or keeping us from doing that is a kind of reflexive timidness. Um, and I guess what you're saying is, uh, Jed, go back and look at the proposal and how much is it in the service of our kids and families and let that guide guide things, not any kind of general calibration on whether or not this is aggressive or not. Right. But, but let me let me use let me say something that may not sit well with some of the people who may ultimately look at this. But so I I, I believe that Donald Trump and what he represents is not in our interests. But I believe that there's a way to continue to, to say to Joe Biden, what you're talking about ain't necessarily in our interest either. And because I'm going to fight Joe Biden, you can't therefore say I'm a Trojan horse for Donald Trump. Because mm -hmm. I'm over here saying, you know what, I'm doing everything that I can to fight Donald Trump. But I'm not going to be silent on what I think Joe Biden should be doing. Yeah. Nobody asked Bernie Sanders to be silent with Joe, mm -hmm. with Joe Biden. <laughs> Bernie right. Sanders, if you push your particular view, then you're supporting Trump. Nobody says that. But that's what yep. they say to us, oh, you charter people should be quiet because if you're not quiet, you're supporting Donald Trump. That's a bogus argument. We should be aggressive <laughs> in our criticism and our critique of Joe Biden at the same time that I'm saying very clearly, I'm a vote for you, man. And the reason why I'm a vote for you is because of this dude that you're running against. But the fact that I'm going to vote for you, you should be clear that I don't, that I don't like what you're saying and doing. And I'm preparing mm. myself to fight you on the other side. And then if mm. you're not careful in, in how you talk about it, you are the one who's really going to help Donald Trump because you're going to turn some people against you that you don't even need to be turning them against you. All you got to do is be supportive of where Arnie and Obama was on the yeah. charters. I mean, just make yep. a simple step. Donald Trump comes out and says, Joe Biden is against charter schools. Joe Biden can deal with that by simply coming out and saying, I'm not against charter schools. And we would be yep. stupid not to push Joe Biden to make that statement. And the fact that yep. I'm going to push you does not mean that I'm supporting Donald Trump because I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Howard, this has just been a great, great hour with you. Um, I, uh, one of the things I just love most about my work uh, is I just have come into contact with just such extraordinary charter folk and, 
uh, they've helped me get smarter and um, and more passionate about the work. And there's nobody that's um, surpassed your impact on me. And you know what you've said over the last hour, just uh, for the broader audience, uh, is just clear evidence of of why you have that kind of impact on me and why you have impact on so many other folks. I know that you're uh, you're you're zooming toward your 80th birthday, <laughs> your 80th birthday, which is unbelievable. I did notice that your uh, your birthday is on January 14th. My 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 brother's is on January thirteenth. You know, I'm always going to think about you as like a day away from being my brother. Um, <laughs> and and you just you just you, if there's anything that I can ever be doing to help you on what you're doing, you just you know, just let me know anytime. And you know, thanks again for spending time with us here. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care. Now. All right, take bye care. Bye. All right, bye bye.